Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu slash certificate to learn more. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. When it comes to understanding how we learn, we spend a lot of time and money trying to improve our brains. Think of the classes, games, supplements. Science journalist Annie Murphy-Paul has written several books about the brain, and she was about to write another when she had a revelation there's too much focus on the brain. Diving into research and the wisdom of teachers, Annie Murphy-Paul shows us how we can grow young and older minds in her latest book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. That conversation coming up. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Uh, let's just start with brains, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have we been paying too much attention to brains? <laughs> I love that question. I mean, I think we've been paying the wrong kind of attention to brains is what I would say. All that stuff about the brain being extraordinary and astonishing is true, but it's also true that the brain is this limited, quirky, idiosyncratic organ that has biological constraints that emerge from the fact that it's it evolved to do jobs that are different from what we ask it to do in our classrooms and our workplaces today. So I think that's one way in which our conversations about the brain are misdirected or misguided. And then the other thought I have about the way brains are talked about in the classroom is that I think teachers have sometimes been led to think that neuroscience has more direct application to 
educational practices than I think it actually does. I think neuroscience is fascinating, but it doesn't have a whole lot to say to what teachers do day to day in the classroom. You wrote about three outside of the brain ways we should be approaching learning, and you call them mental extensions. And while they help the brain, they're not solely focused on that organ. The mental extensions are embodied, so the physical, situation-based, and relationship-based. Can you lay those out for us? Sure, yeah. So the three major mental extensions that I write about in the extended mind are, first of all, the body. We don't just think with our brains. We think with our, our bodies below the neck as well through gestures and sensations and physical movements. The second major mental extension is our physical environment, the um, the way that our classrooms and our workspaces and our learning spaces are, are arranged. That's situated cognition, the idea that where we are really affects the way we think. And finally, there's a body of research on socially distributed cognition, that this is the mental extension of other people, other minds, and the way that we don't just think with our own brains alone, but with other people, with a kind of group mind. And that last one, the social extension that says relationships help us learn, you know, reminds me of that well-known saying in education, you can't learn from someone you don't like. You know, at the same time, you can find yourself inspired by who's around you, like a competitor, maybe a nemesis who makes you work harder. They're just people all around us who can influence how we learn, affect our memories and affect how we behave as well. Right. Our thinking is changed by not only having people around and feeling their social presence, literally our bodies become more aroused and more energized when we're in the presence of another person. Being in that kind of alert, energized state is helpful for learning. Um, But it's not just uh, having people around, but what kind of people are around and what kind of relationship do you have to them? And I think we could be using relationships in a much more intentional way. how having a teacher affects the way I think. This is how having um, a relationship with a rival affects the way I think. This is how relating with a peer affects the way I think. And the more we know about that, the more we can consciously and deliberately make use of relationships to improve the way we think and learn. You found a fourth grade class here in the Bay Area. I think it's pronounced Vallecito Elementary School in San Rafael. And you wrote that the school has, and this is from your book, an activity permissive ethos. Can you explain what that means and why such a label would even have to exist? (laughs) I know, right? Yeah, activity permissive classrooms. I mean, it's a useful label, I guess, because it distinguishes a classroom where kids are free to move around and move their bodies from a more traditional classroom where children are expected to sit still and think. Um, But it still sounds a bit apologetic to me. Like, yeah, we permit you to move your body in this classroom. And what's so paradoxical about that is that human beings, we evolve to move. And it actually uses up a fair amount of mental bandwidth just to inhibit that natural urge to move. And that means less bandwidth, fewer mental resources that students then have available to apply to their learning. Many students, especially those with a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, actually think better when they're moving. And so this assumption that you need to stop moving in order to think is really, um, for many kids, a mistaken belief. They actually need to move in order to think. Or when we uh, you know, allow kids to 
sit on a, an exercise ball or even in some classrooms are experimenting with having kids uh, ride a stationary bike while they read or while they attend to their studies. So once we recognize that it's an unnatural expectation, especially of children to have them not move while they think, and that requirement of not moving actually inhibits and impairs their mental functioning. Another thing you wrote in your book, right, related to this, we believe there's something virtuous about controlling the impulse to move. And when I saw that line, I had flashbacks to different institutions, right? Like school, church, um, even work. So um, can you explain why we see movement this way? Why the culture is this way? Yeah, I, I do think it goes back to that division between mind and body and a certain disparagement of the body and its needs and its tendencies. You can see that also in our attitudes towards fidgeting. Even the word is not neutral. It's usually used in a sort of disparaging way. And we see someone who fidgets as impatient or sometimes almost sort of morally shifty, (laughs) you know, like, why can't they keep their hands still? What's, What's going on there? But really, fidgeting is this amazingly adaptive, fine tuned way of modulating our arousal such that you know, fidgeting during a long meeting or a long class can help keep people alert and awake. And also there's different kinds of fidgeting and certain kinds of fidgeting may produce certain kinds of mental states like fidgeting that is more playful can sort of put us in a more expansive and positive and creative state of mind. And then there are other kinds of maybe repetitive kinds of fidgeting that are soothing and can calm someone down who's feeling anxious. Fidgeting is, as I say, this sort of brilliant way of of micromanaging our bodies such that our brains can work at an optimal level. And, And there's a phrase that I have borrowed from the researcher Catherine Isbister that I love, she talks about embodied self-regulation. So we usually think of self-regulation as something that you muster from within, mostly sort of in your head. It's like a top-down order that the brain imposes. But what Catherine Isbister is saying is that actually regulating your emotions and your thoughts can sometimes most effectively be done through the body by having the body act in certain ways. It's a really neat way of sort of turning our usual ideas about self-regulation on their head. I want to turn to the role of tech because we spent so much time on our screens over the last you know, couple of years and especially a lot of those students doing distance learning. How do you think teaching and learning over Zoom affected the ability to have outside of the brain ways of learning when it comes to embodied, distributed or um, situational strategies? And, and I just also want to add, you know, some students did really well online, but others didn't. That is true. And I know a lot of teachers put a lot of effort into making their Zoom teaching as engaging as possible. I think a lot of teachers and a lot of students found that Zoom education is not as engaging as in-person teaching. And part of that is, I think, because uh, Zoom teaching doesn't facilitate or doesn't enable the use of mental extensions as much as uh, in-person teaching can. 
there's a lot more opportunity for movement and even gesture when you're speaking to each other face-to-face in a classroom. Some of these things can be, with intentional effort, can be addressed in Zoom teaching. You know, we can make sure that we sit or stand far enough away from the, the computer camera that our gestures are included in the screen that other people see. We can remind ourselves to use gesture, even though that might not be our typical mode when we're sitting at our computers, whereas when we're talking to another person in person, in the flesh, um, those gestures come out more naturally. And also material objects, you know, which get passed around in classrooms or, you know, examined together. Um, Thinking with objects is an important way of extending the mind. And that too can be incorporated into Zoom teaching. It just requires sort of more intentional effort. When it comes to taking breaks, anything from studying or, you know, being seated in class uh, and even working, I'll throw myself in the mix for that, um, a lot of folks pick up their phones, check in on social media, do games and apps and whatnot. What have you found that the research says about these kinds of breaks? Yeah, you know, those kinds of breaks, and I take them to those kinds of breaks feel to us as if we're doing something different from work. And so they feel like a break, like a change of pace. But actually, from the point of view of the brain, you're really doing exactly the same thing. Um, And that means you're draining exactly the same kinds of cognitive resources that you'll need to muster when then you return to learning or to your work. Really, what you want to do with your breaks is something completely different. Going outside would be an ideal um, alternative. Getting physical activity of some kind. Some, you know, if you take a walk outside, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. Engaging in some kind of genuinely social activity, and I don't mean going on social media, but like actually maybe calling a friend or um, checking in with somebody who's who's in your household or in your office. Those things actually allow the brain to refresh itself, to restore its its attentional capacity. And I that's this is a, another vote in favor of recess and giving kids plenty of recess because the research also indicates that brisk, you know, vigorous physical activity just before we engage in cognitive activity really sharpens our mental acuity and it also improves children's and adults' executive function. In your book, you kind of remind us that uh, the span of humanity is not just, you know, since the advent of the iPhone or even, um, (laughs) you know, um, school as we know it, but it goes way back when there were not necessarily buildings or, um, you know, and, and that we were more out in nature and that is still a part of who we are. And so the findings about nature's effects, I thought were very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you highlighted that because that was interesting to me too. I think I, like most people know that when I go outside, I feel good. I feel restored after spending some time in nature. But it was really interesting to me to find out why that would be the case. Human beings evolved in the outdoors and this this life where we spend most of our time indoors is is a very recent development in the, in the span of human history. So because of that, our perceptual faculties are really tuned to the kind of information, the kind of stimuli that we encounter when we're in nature. You know, the limited range of, of color that we encounter outside, the um, gentle movements, the overlapping edges, not these sort of sharp defined edges and loud noises and fast movements that we encounter when we're in an urban setting. 
And we actually need to periodically refill the tank, so to speak, of, of our attention. And the fastest and easiest and most effective way to do that is to is simply to spend some time outside. I want to touch on a topic that I think nearly everyone in education knows about by now, which is growth mindset, and that the brain can, you know, act like a muscle and be strengthened with practice and training. How does thinking outside the brain work in the world of growth mindset? The growth mindset can be a very positive and empowering message to people, to children and students who are told, you know, exercise your brain like it's a physical muscle, it'll get stronger, that's how you get smarter. So that that is a positive message, but I think it's a limited one because um, once you've done that or once you've tried that, there aren't really a lot of other options and it's still a very brain-centric, brain-bound. And the thing I love about the theory of the extended mind is that it opens up the whole world, literally, and views the whole world as this repository of, of resources that can help us think, that can actually become part of our thinking. Like you could take a walk, as we've been talking about, you could spend time in nature, you could find somebody to bounce your ideas off of and activate those um, sociocognitive processes, you could decide to gesture or act it out in some way that uses your body. So you have so many options literally at your fingertips to improve your thinking and to enhance your thinking. And it's not up to your brain alone to do it all. It's much more effective and efficient even to influence ourselves from the outside in, to change our context in some significant way that will allow us to shift perspective or see things differently or try out new solutions to a problem. Um, Because often just sitting there kind of trying to make it all happen from within yourself is just a prescription for frustration. Thanks so much for being with us, Annie. Oh, thanks, Kay. This has been such a pleasure. Annie Murphy-Paul is a journalist and the author of The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. You can follow her on Twitter at Annie Murphy-Paul. MindShift is produced by me, Ki Sung, and Nima Gobier. Our editor is Jessica Placek. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Kiana Mogendam is our interim head of podcasts. And Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love MindShift and enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It's a helpful way for people to find out about the show and it helps us keep going. Thank you for listening to MindShift. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 